Well, you can go ahead and open up your Bibles to John chapter 7. John chapter 7. We've been working through the Gospel of John piece by piece, bit by bit, and we arrive now to chapter 7. We're going to cover the whole chapter, but we're not going to read the whole thing in the interest of time. I just want to read a portion, and then we'll, we'll, we'll go from there. John 7, we'll pick it up in verse 14. John 7, verse 14. These are the words of God. But when it was now the midst of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began to teach. And Jews then were astonished, saying, How has this man become learned, having never been educated? So Jesus answered them and said, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone is willing to do his will, he will know of the teaching, whether it is of God or whether I speak from myself. He who speaks from himself seeks his own glory, but he who is seeking the glory of the one who sent him, he is true, and there is no unrighteousness in him. Did not Moses give you the law, and yet none of you carries out the law? Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, You have a demon who seeks to kill you. Jesus answered them, I did one deed, and you all marvel. For this reason Moses has given you circumcision, not because it is from Moses, but from the fathers. And on the Sabbath you circumcise a man. If a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses will not be broken, are you angry with me because I made an entire man well on the Sabbath? Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. So some of the people of Jerusalem were saying, Is this not the man whom they are seeking to kill? Look, he is speaking publicly, and they are saying nothing to him. The rulers do not really know that this is the Christ, do they? However, we know where this man is from. But whenever the Christ may come, no one knows where he is from. Then Jesus cried out in the temple, teaching and saying, You both know me and know where I am from, and I have not come of myself, but he who sent me is true, whom you do not know. I know him because I am from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to seize him, and no man laid his hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. But many of the crowd believed in him, and they were saying, When the Christ comes, he will, not, will he not perform more signs than those which this man has, will he? The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things and said, said uh, things about him, and the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to seize him. Therefore Jesus said, For a little while I am with you, then I go to him who sent me. You will seek me and will not find me, and where I am you cannot come. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father and gracious God, we have gathered this evening to remember your covenant law and to ask that your Spirit would help us to obey this covenant law. Give us eyes to see, give us ears to hear, and hearts to obey. We ask this in Christ's name, for Christ's fame and his glory. Amen. Amen. Um, so we've, we're continuing in the Gospel of John, um, as is our custom afterwards. We have a little bit of time for discussion and questions, um, and, and certainly we can take time for that later as well, if need be, uh, if anything is pressing in your mind. Um, but we've been working through the Gospel of John, and you'll need to remember what we said last week in order to keep the context in mind for what, what we're talking about tonight. So last week we said that Christ's compulsion is our liberty, liberation. Christ's compulsion is our liberation. And this is because no one comes to the Father unless they are dragged along by the Spirit. And that is only done, of course, and accomplished by the power of the Holy Spirit to bringing us to Christ. 
So we said last time that Christ's compulsory force of liberating man from the condemnation in Adam, that's the primary purpose of the gospel of the kingdom. So the gospel is a covenant itself that res resolves and rescues the problem of man's rebellion against um, God's covenant, against prior covenants. So I'll say that again. The gospel, we should think of it as a covenant, the final covenant to end all other covenants or to bring them to their meaning. And, and that resolves and that rescues all of the problems we've inherited from the violations of the other covenant. So, which means that man must not and man cannot come to God on his own terms, which incidentally was the problem all along. Now, the people at this point, if you recall, the people wanted bread from Jesus. They wanted the bread of life to provide more miracles. And of course, Jesus wouldn't allow it. They wanted miracles. Jesus kept them at bay. Part of, what the re part of the problem with that is they wanted miracles because, again, they wanted God on their terms. They wanted a God that they could manage, and Jesus is completely and entirely unmanageable. Now, for, for Jesus, as the author of human imagination, he is not subject to human imagination. As the author of human imagination, he is not subject to human imagination. The exclusivity of Christ's salvation is such that only when we partake of his flesh and drink of his blood, that's what he told us to do, that is when we believe on him, when we partake of him as our new federal head, the new humanity, when we do that, we find salvation and for the believer, we, we find sustenance. We find sustenance. Now, this I know is a narrow, very narrow exclusive claim. Of course, that flies in the face of, of our current cultural bent toward pluralism and this idea that there can be many gods in the arena vying for your attention, um, what we might call Oprah-anity. <laughs> now, the passage here before us builds on this exclusive argument, and really when you consider the whole book of John as a whole, it's entirely clear that this is where things really start to heat up. This is where things heat up for Jesus and his, and his mission, his ministry. We left off the, the previous passage, you remember, with the crowds being completely and entirely offended at the content of Jesus' ministry, his message. He, he said, you must drink my flesh, eat my flesh, drink my blood, which as we saw last week was probably most likely a reference to King David when he... Um, said that he wouldn't drink the blood of his, his brothers who went to give him a drink from the well at Bethlehem. So things get heated up. They're offended by him. Many of them had left due to, their, to, to their, um, <laughs> their, the hard nature of the teaching. So their sensibilities had been hurt. Their expectations about the kingdom had been thwarted. Remember, they tried to make Jesus king, and he snuck away. All hope was basically dashed against the rocks because Jesus didn't quite fit the bill. They're trying to figure out who this man is. He's not fitting into what they think. And so they leave. There's confusion. And we too must not underestimate the hardness of Jesus' teaching. Many, many people were frustrated because Jesus would not conform to their de desires. And because of that, they essentially discarded him writing him off as a crazy man, which, by the way, hard teaching will either create soft hearts 
or it's going to harden already hard hearts. And all of that is obviously dependent on the grace of God. The Puritans would say the same sun that melts the ice hardens the clay. So let's summarize the passage before us and then and we'll pull out some meaning and what we should do with it as, as a community. We begin in verse 2. You can follow along as we go. We're going to just jump through quickly. This is the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Booze, or Succoth in Hebrew. This is a, is a fall festival where many Jews would construct small tent-like structures or booths basically made out of branches, and they would, re- they would do this to remind themselves of the wilderness wandering. Psalms were sung, lots of praises were, were given to God, and the prophets were read. It was, like Passover, this great celebration, the celebration of this huge Exodus story, this, this eschatological foreshadowing of God's Spirit being poured out on all flesh, this living water that's rushing out of this new Eden to fill the earth with the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. That's what the Feast of Tabernacles was pointing to. Now Jesus, he's staying in Galilee for the moment. Um, he refrained from going again to Judea, down to Jerusalem, because according to verse 1, the Jewish leaders wanted him dead. They wanted him dead. His brothers, they urged him to go to Jerusalem because it's a huge feast with hundreds of thousands of people, and clearly that's a good time to show off your miraculous talents. Verse 3. Now for them, there's no need to do these things in secret. There's no need to keep it a secret. Clearly the mission's already public. They're encouraging Jesus, why not go? Go show yourself to the world. Verse 4. John explains in verse 5, though, that not even his brothers believed in him. I don't know what I would have done had my brother, physical, like, brother, well, half-physical brother, how, how, how would I have believed on him? Would I have believed on him? Family oftentimes is a tough sell. Now, knowing this, Jesus makes it clear in verses 6 through 8 that there's a timing issue. They want him to go to Jerusalem, go to the feast, do your miracles, show yourself to the world. Why not? This is a great opportunity. And Jesus says, well, there's there's a timing issue. His time, that is the hour of his revelation on the cross. Remember, he keeps saying his hour has not yet come. It's not yet there, but their time is always opportune. In other words, they can go to the festival whenever they want. There's no pressure on them. There is no moment of decisiveness for them because that's the nature of time for the world. You've heard the phrase, timing is everything, right? Timing is everything. Well, here you go. The world seeks its own glory, and because of it, it is shut up inside of time where there's no end and there is no meaning. I think of, we mentioned Van Til earlier, this um, disintegration into the void where man in his sin just spirals down into more meaninglessness, more meaninglessness after more meaninglessness. It just piles on. You see, apart from God... There, there is this endless time, but there's nothing meaningful to it. There's no goal for history for those who break God's covenant. But according to Christ, there is a time, there is an hour, when God's kingdom would in fact infiltrate the world, and this is the new clock. It's the new standard of time, the, the rule and reign of God. You think of the, like the French Revolution when they would um, try to change the calendar. That's not the first time that's been done. 
Many, many people would try to change and alter time, but God has made time to function on, on his terms, not man's terms. So when Jesus goes up, that is when he's lifted up on the cross, he's going to go to the Father, and this will happen because men who live for their own glory according to their own time are going to seek to kill Jesus. They want to eliminate Jesus because man doesn't want to work on God's time. Time in the kingdom of God is not meaningless because there is a goal, there is an end, and that being the glory of God in Christ our King. So Jesus makes it clear. The world doesn't hate them because there's no reason for it yet, but it does hate Jesus, the text says, because he is the light exposing the darkness, and we already know that men prefer their evil deeds and the darkness over a strict revelation of God. So, so Jesus is here waiting for the timing of his father. He's not in a rush to go to Jerusalem. And he's certainly not going to go to Jerusalem on the whims of their disciples who just want him to be, uh, bring the circus to town. <laughs> so he's waiting, and he will not be subject to human approval. Public opinion for Jesus is of no concern because public opinion does not turn the clock. Hear me, Cross and Crown Church. When we think of public opinion... Because I, I get it, a robust worldview of Christian reconstruction, you can be tempted to think we're weird. <laughs> we are odd. We, we do things strangely. We talk about things that not many churches talk about. But let me assure you that when we're on Jesus' side here, public opinion is of no concern. It's, we're not, it's not a popularity contest. Now, there's something else to be said about their insistence on Jesus going to Jerusalem to show off. And, and listen, either we, I'm talking to you, moms, dads, men, women, children, all of you, either we will do the work of God and influence will be extended on God's terms, or we will try to hurry the influence along, we'll try to hurry up, and then we'll look like fools because of it. And that's essentially what's happening here with the disciples and Jesus. They want him to go, show off, do the miracles. Everybody's going to be there, Jesus. Why wouldn't you do it? And Jesus wants nothing to do with it. You cannot hurry influence along. When we think of leadership and service and all these concepts, influence has to come. You don't hurry it along. When you hurry that stuff along, you become a fool. You look like a fool. You look like a megalomaniac. And there's enough of that going on. We don't need any more. So the disciples, they, they want this, and they want to work back the favor of the crowds that Jesus had just offended, and, and he dismissed them with such harsh, harsh teaching. But Jesus, this is not the way of the kingdom. That's not the way of the kingdom. Popularity is not going to be the primary aim for those who care about the kingdom of God. It's just not the way it works. If you want to lead, what does Jesus tell us? You have to serve. If you want to be first, you have to be last. The first shall be last. So the disciples, they don't know the hatred of the world because they're trying to be liked by the world. And, and that, isn't that the, the, um, the situation du jour right now of the church? Trying to be liked, trying to, 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 to package this gospel in a way that's it's not offensive, trying to, to do this in such a way where, where we, can, we can win people over, right? Um, that's not the way of the kingdom. 
Jesus, he's going to go to Jerusalem, as we'll see. We read that passage. But he's going to go on his terms or his father's terms. And for Jesus, he's going to expose sin and darkness. He's not trying to win friends and influence people, to quote a book. That's not the aim of the kingdom. I'm not saying we shouldn't have friends, and I'm not saying we shouldn't influence people. But not at the expense of the kingdom of God. So instead of saying timing is everything... We should say God's timing is everything, and there is a difference. Now, following this exchange, we learn that Jesus goes up to Jerusalem, presumably getting prayerful authorization from the Father. So he goes there, but he goes in secret because Jesus is humble. Upon arrival, look at verse 11, we learn that everyone's looking for him. Everyone in the city of Jerusalem is looking for Jesus. He's a Jew. This is a festival. Where is he? He's supposed to be here. And again, for them, they're asking, wanting a God in their image. Where is he? Where is he? Where's the, where's the miracle worker? I'd like to touch him or see what he can do. We see here in verse 12 that there was a grumbling, a consternation happening in Jerusalem and in Judea. Some thought him to be a good man. Others said he was leading people astray. Who is this Jesus? Is he a good person? Is he a good person? Or is he a deceitful false prophet? Does he have a demon? That's what they say in verse 20. Or is he the Christ? We we don't know. In verse 27, they're not even sure where the the Christ is supposed to come from. There's no no, um, understanding of that. His origin for them is bewildering. So the confusion on his humanity is tied to the confusion on on his deity. (laughs) When you read the Gospels, Jesus is quite elusive. He's hard to pin down. They wanted him to be king. Isn't that what he was doing after all? And he snuck away. They, they wanted him to go to Jerusalem, but he says no. But then he comes in secret. He's elusive. You can't nail him down. Well, they will eventually, pun intended. But they can't get any of this right because for Jesus, he's not going to conform to their demands and expectations. And let me tell you this as a side note. Uh, going to this happened a couple weeks ago at george mason we had a professor woman come up and criticize our signs because we had a picture of of a um a baby in, in utero we had a, a child at was it a 10 10 week picture i think and she said that's not a person that's not a person well once once we drilled down she was like the poster child for what you think of like a rabid sort of just angry she has kids but you know, that's her uterus, her body, you know, and she's a professor there. And one of the things with, with Ron and I were standing there, one of the things we drilled down was is she wanted a God on her terms and she couldn't acknowledge it because she said, well, it's not sin to kill the child. And suddenly, though, it's a person when when they come out the magic birth canal. And I said, well, why would it be a sin then to to take the life of the child afterwards? And then we started talking about sin and God. Who is God? Well, she wanted a God in her own image. Nobody's neutral, right? Everybody is either with Christ or against him. And those who are against him are trying to make a God in their own image, according to their standards. But Jesus won't won't succumb to that. Because of the uncertainty of who he is, this leads to an uncertainty of what he's teaching, 
What is all this teaching about? A lack of righteous judgment, then, is the natural outcome of men who are blinded by sin. When men fail, when man fails to obey Christ, he fails to understand what he teaches. So Jesus, he goes up in verse 14, he goes to the temple, and he begins to teach. And this led the people to ask for his education credentials. <laughs> Why did this man get so much knowledge? He did not go to seminary. He didn't go to our rabbinic schools. How is he? Is this, did he go to an accredited school? That's what they want to know. And Jesus explains that his teaching and authority comes from heaven, not from rabbinical schools and human agency. In fact, anyone in Christ empowered by the Spirit, listen to what I said, anyone in Christ, anyone, and I mean that. Anyone in, in, in Christ empowered by the Spirit, the Spirit who helps us to discern between good and evil, can discern and teach and see things clearly. That's the beauty of God's Word. Now, after explaining about glory and teaching about God's will, which we'll come back to in a minute, Jesus goes on the offense. If you have your Bible, look at verse 19. He asks a question. Did not Moses give you the law? And yet none of you carries out the law. Why do you seek to kill me? In other words, you're accusing me and speculating about me and questioning my teaching authority, but he turns the tables. What about you and your lack of obedience to the law word of God? God's, God's law is the measure of justice. Why don't you obey it? Are you a teacher of Israel and you don't know these things? The crowds are thus stirred up. It seems like that's a common attribute of Jesus' ministry. Jesus explains that he did one deed and everyone marveled. This deed being the healing of the man in the pool on the Sabbath just two chapters ago, which would have been about six months from this story. To further demonstrate why it was lawful, for Jesus to heal this crippled man on the Sabbath, Jesus illustrates it by talking about circumcision in Moses. Why would he talk about circumcision in Moses? Well, it's clear in verse 22 and 23 and 24. Jesus makes something plain here in the text. They don't actually obey the law of God that they claim to teach. They don't obey the law of God that they claim to teach. The Pharisees... Listen, we get this wrong. The Pharisees weren't bad because they obeyed God's law. They weren't bad because they obeyed God's law. That's a common misunderstanding in evangelicalism. Rather, they were at odds with God, and thus they were at odds with Jesus because they did not obey God's law. They had tried to make man for Sabbath and rather than embrace the gift of Sabbath that was made for man. This twisting of the law contorts the aim and the purpose of God's law, which is to give life and revive the soul. John, you read Psalm 19, 7. The law of the Lord revives the soul. Quote that to a, a dispensationalist. Jesus points out, he points this out by explaining that they allow circumcision of a newborn boy on the eighth day when it falls on the Sabbath. Why wouldn't the healing of a man... Uh, um, be a greater illustration of giving life. Why wouldn't you allow that? You'll, you'll circumcise a child on the eighth day if it's the Sabbath, but what about the healing of a man? Why, why would that be a big deal? Well, to be clear, regarding circumcision, Jesus is saying that if the administration of the sign of the covenant is important, 
then so is the blessing of life and healing inside the covenant. Did you catch that? He, he brings up circumstances. If, if the sign of the covenant is allowed on the Sabbath, why not the whole thing? Why not the blessing of life and beauty inside of God's covenant? Why not? See, the law points to Jesus, and its, its purpose is life. And their unrighteous judgment towards Jesus and his actions means that they are in violation of the very law that they claim to uphold. The law points to Jesus, and they can't get it. See, Jesus gives life. What do they want? We already, we're already told last, last chapter, they want to kill Jesus. They want death. Jesus wants life. There's this picture here. See, when men try, when men try and capture the revelation of God on their terms and thus put it entirely in their discriminatory possession, they are left with hypocrisy and condemnation. Jesus' interaction with the Pharisees here, I'm going to say that again, it's the same thing that transcends this time. When men try and capture the revelation of God on their terms and thus put it entirely in their discriminatory possession, they are left with hypocrisy and condemnation. See, at this point, the people are confused and the leaders, of course, are getting, they're not getting any quieter. They're getting even more angry. Where is he from? Heaven, Jesus explains. In fact, Jesus will return to the Father and they won't be able to seek him or find him because their time will be up. Judgment is coming. And where does he intend to go, the crowd asks. Well, to complete his teaching, verse 37 says that it was the last day. That's not a small note. Look in your Bible and see this. It was the last day, the great day of the feast. And in that day, the priest would take a golden jug and the priest would pour water from the pool, the same pool where Jesus healed the, the crippled man. They would pour water on the altar, and that was a signifying of God's Spirit being poured on the earth. And Jesus takes it as an opportunity. What does he say? He says that he is the one who gives life. He's the one who gives water. He's the one who quenches thirst, and the people can drink of him. When we drink of Christ, we are taking his spirit. That's the connection. When, when a man drinks of Christ, he's dr when drinks of him, he gets his spirit. Jesus is the one who, who does all this. Those who believe, they have rivers of living water flowing out of them forever. And this was the pouring out of the spirit, which was in conjunction with his death and resurrection, which we'll get to soon enough. Now, before we apply it, I'll just say this. The rest of the passage is simply the people and religious leaders bickering. They're bickering about Jesus. The Pharisees, they think that the people are stupid and thus they don't understand anything. Yet Nicodemus, our friend Nicodemus, shows up and he tests the other religious leaders to see whether or not they believe in due process or not. The power religionists do not like to be questioned and they dismissed Nicodemus' concerns. So what do, we, what do we do with all this? There's the text. There's the summary. We pulled some things out. What do, we, what do we do with all this? Well, at the center of this passage is Jesus' command to judge with righteous judgment. We're told and commanded to judge with righteous judgment. But why would this matter? 
The reason that Jesus demands that we judge righteously is because Jesus does the very same thing. Jesus does the same thing. Christ's very presence in the world is the judgment. We, we sort of push everything off to the judgment day, and there will be a judgment day, and we believe that is basic to Christian doctrine. But what we fail to believe that Je- is that Jesus Christ's presence in the world, through his Holy Spirit, through his church, that is part of the judgment. And how will men respond to Christ? The world doesn't know God because God, because of their glory whoring, essentially, but, I mean, that's what idols do, right? Idols see to it that you're just like them, that you're blind, that you're stupid, that you're incoherent. But if Christ is the arche, he's the center point, he's the reference point for all things, and he most certainly is, how will men then respond to him? See, how men react to Christ determines how the judgment plays out. When you think of Jesus stepping foot on this earth, God taking on flesh, this great division, right? He said, I, can't, I didn't come to bring peace but a sword. There's a great division in history. There's a division between all mankind. So how, but how men respond to that, that's, that depends on how the judgment plays out. You see, God's revelation in the flesh creates a crisis of confrontation. God's revelation in the flesh creates a crisis of confrontation. Think about this. Ideas of God, ideas and conjecture and postulations about God, that can't create a crisis. It can't. Who cares, right? It's, you're just thinking things. Who cares what you think? Why do you care what I think? Well, who cares what anybody thinks? They're ideas. They're metaphysical. They're, they're outside the realm of tangibility. You can't just hold it. So ideas and thoughts of a God in your own own image do nothing but suit your idolatrous lusts. After all, you're the sovereign in that particular story. So ideas of God, who cares? But God in the flesh, with a heart that beats and blood pressure that rises when he's in the temple angry, a man who is God with a name and clothing on his back, and breath in his lungs, this is confrontational. That's confrontation. That leaves things unsettled. Jesus in the flesh, what do you do with that? This is what we could say a collision of colossal proportions. In in other words, this sort of thing cannot be ignored. When you think about your evangelism, when you think about your family, when you think about when you're at work, when 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 you think about your life as you live it, you are participating in this great confrontation. It's a confrontation, and you can try to dumb it down and dull it so it's not sharp anymore. All you want, no matter what way you slice it, Christianity gives a crisis of confrontation. Why? Because Jesus took on flesh. See, he cannot be ignored. He, the church has tried for long, a long time to, to allow that to be the case. Well, we don't get involved in politics. You know, the Baptists in Oklahoma, we don't, we're not behind abolishing abortion because of this, this, and this, and the other. What are they doing? They're dulling the edge. They're dulling it. They are saying to the knife, you're too sharp. We're going to just dull this down a little bit. They're going to break this, the, the, the end off because we don't want to offend anybody. 
But you can't ignore this. The incarnation of the God-man is a crisis for all men. And either we're going to treat it like that, or we're not, and we're going to be irrelevant, and then the next generation is going to have to come along and figure it out, or they're going to be irrelevant. So, so we have to deal with it. And that's the judgment. That's the judgment. And Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 2.8, he says the wisdom of the world didn't get it. The wisdom of the world did not understand what was happening here. The, the, the rulers didn't know what they were doing. For if they did know, they wouldn't have crucified the Lord of glory. The wisdom and the righteousness of the world, everything that the world could muster up in this moment, all the religious, philosophical, moral, political, all of it, the best course of action was to kill this man. That's what they came up with to kill Jesus, to put an end to his life. And the world did not know because the world cannot see, and thus the foolishness of God is wiser than the wisdom of man. Speaking of knowledge, the other aspect related to this is in the fact that in order to know the veracity of Christ's revelation in himself, in his word, we must do God's will. Look at verse 16 and 17 because you can't leave without seeing this in the text. So Jesus answered them and said, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. Listen to this, verse 17. If anyone is willing to do his will, he will know of the teaching, whether it is of God or whether I speak of myself. Did you catch it? The only way to know the teaching of Christ is to do the will of God. That's the connection. And this means that knowledge... Knowledge isn't um, amoral. Knowledge itself isn't, knowledge is uniquely tied to what we, we can say morality and religion or ethics. Knowledge is not neutral. Don't miss the connection because all of this is foundational to presuppositionalism. To, to have true knowledge of God's self-revelation in Christ, one must do God's will. In other words, epistemology, the theory of knowledge, is, is not morally neutral. Even knowledge itself is not morally neutral. Knowing is inextricably tied to virtue, and virtue can only be defined in, in terms of God's law, which means that we have to actually do it and not be called a religious Pharisee for it because we want to do God's law. We have to do it. We have to actively obey it. And then and only then can we really know. Um, I, I forget the Latin phrase off the top of my head, but it was Augustine who basically said, um, it's, it's belief in God and then knowledge, faith seeking understanding. We start with the Spirit's implantation of a new life in us, and then we know. We know. We're not blind anymore. We're not deaf anymore. We can see, we can hear, we can feel, we can taste, touch, we can do all of it because we have been brought to life. See, because of the Enlightenment and things like rationalism and humanism, men have basically tried to divorce knowledge from, from morality. But knowledge isn't, is not simply an intellectual exercise that's removed from your emotions and removed from, from ethics. Go all the way back from the Greek philosophers all the way up to the Enlightenment 500 years ago and onward. Man has always tried to elevate the sovereignty of man's thinking by doing what? Removing the moral components of God's law. That's the connection. 
That's the bait and switch tactics, right? That, it redefines evil, calling it good. That's the great heresy. Um, taking, taking that which is good, calling it heresy. And, and, this, and at this point, man really isn't a product then at the fall of Adam. If we take God out of the picture, we're not, a, we're not a product of the fall of Adam. And so we try to usurp God's revelation and we elevate the sovereignty of man. And man is this great new creature who has climbed out of the primordial chaos. That's what we're up against. But since we're Christians, we reject this wholesale. Man and in and of himself is not and cannot be objective reason, capital R. See, apart from Christ, Man is morally at odds with the Creator God. He has fallen and he is morally repugnant. His revolt against God saturates everything in him, his body, his soul, his emotions, his aspirations, and his mind. And Jesus here condemns this thinking because philosophies that start with man are morally offensive to God who created man. Thus man must learn to judge with righteous judgment. That's the whole point of the passage. This is an ethical call as much as it is an intellectual call. They go together. Which means that we must be careful to heed the call to righteous judgment. All of you children in here, you are called to righteous judgment. When you are at home and, and you're bickering with your siblings, you are called to righteous judgment. You are. God expects that from you. To discern the situation and to judge it, to, 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 to figure out what the situation is and figure out how can I obey God in this moment. That goes for you kids, that goes for us adults too. <laughs> and all of that means that we need to be careful in it. The, the, the Bible says the spiritual person judges all things, 1 Corinthians 2.15. This judgment, the appraisal, the evaluation has to be righteous, which, which is to say there's an ethical judicial component to what we're supposed to be doing. Last couple of thoughts here, and we'll close. <clears throat> For those who are not in Christ, for those who are not in Christ, you stand, he stands as judge, forcing your hand to respond to you. Right? Repent and embrace him or reject him and kill him, but what you will not be allowed to do is be ambivalent about him. And that should be our message. You are not allowed to be at peace with abortion. You are not allowed to be at peace with government schools. You are not allowed to be at peace with a whole host of things that God calls immoral and unrighteous. And either that's going to be part of the message or we're going to forget about it and we're not going to demand what Christ demands. So you're not permitted to sit on the fence about Jesus. The incarnation doesn't just leave men behind to sort of just figure it out. Our message is simple. Christ died. Christ has risen. Deal with it. For those in Christ, friends, he is prophet, priest, and king. He's telling you the truth. He's atoning for your sin. He has atoned for your sin. And he is ruling your life with the grace of his law word. And in all this, we rejoice. Amen? Amen. 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 Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we do rejoice tonight that Christ as judge is also Christ as Savior. For us who call upon your name, we are blessed to have experienced the forgiveness of sins and the blessedness of your Holy Spirit. Would that the world be brought to repentance in order to experience this glorious thought. 
We ask and pray, Father, tonight that you would awaken your church. And I'm especially reminded of SB 13, a bill to abolish abortion in Oklahoma, a bill that is being held up by ostensible Christians and stubborn Baptists who do not fear you and do not judge righteously. I pray that you would do what you must to bring them to repentance, that they would judge with righteous judgment and seek justice for our preborn neighbors. We know that evil has to be confronted, not coddled. And God, we ask the same for us as we labor for you, for your glory and your kingdom. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, our King. Amen.